Welcome to Beyond Trauma, a podcast from therapists for clients about the healing journey. We hope this will be a resource of encouragement, comfort, insight, and understanding for you along this courageous process. Hey guys, welcome back to Beyond Trauma podcast, a guide for your healing journey. I'm here today with Melissa. Unfortunately, Bridger cannot be with us today, but we are going to continue with the topic that Bridger and I were talking on in our last episode regarding the brain, the development of the brain, and specifically this week we want to explore how the brain responds to trauma and the impact that trauma has on the brain and its functions. Mm -hmm. So we've discussed in earlier episodes what trauma is. So just as a review for you guys, we here at Beyond Healing um, center, we talk about trauma being too, anything that is too much for too long, too little for too long, or too much too soon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with that definition, we want to consider how do those life experiences impact the way the brain is developed and how it functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, you know, one of the ways that we conceptualize the brain is what you guys began talking about with the triune brain. Yeah and kind of the evolutionary development of the reptilian brain um, being the oldest um, part of our brain, evolutionarily speaking. It develops first uh, when we're born. We're born with it fully online because it's the part of us that automates our most uh, basic activities. Because of our reptilian brain, we don't have to think about beating our heart and blinking our eyes and our respiration. We can go to sleep and not quit breathing. Um, the reptilian brain handles all of that. It also handles things like our startle reflex, our you know innate ability to try to keep yourself safe without having to logically think through it all. Um, and then on top of that, we have the mammalian brain, mm-hmm. uh, which handles uh, most of our social connectedness and our emotional interactions with people. The mammalian brain is a big part of that. And that part of our brain develops in the first six years of mm-hmm. life. So mm-hmm. those really early childhood experiences... Um, in those, that, that time of life is when our mammalian brain is still very actively developing. Yes, yeah, and last but certainly not least is um, our rational brain, which most of us know as our prefrontal cortex or the neocortex. It's the last to develop. It's the youngest part of our brain, evolutionarily speaking, and it's also the part of our brain that makes us uniquely human. They're human. There's uh, other mammals that also have a version of this, but ours is the most developed, and it lets us you know, think logically, make plans, um, do compare and contrast and, uh, you know, look at patterns and recognize uh, how we could optimize situations in our life. It's really great at math, um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the rational brain, you know, sits on top of the mammalian brain, uh, which sits on top of the reptilian brain. And what we kind of want to focus on today is how trauma impacts all three parts of our brain. Um, And it impacts those parts in kind of unique ways, but very profound ways. And it's really helpful to understand um, the impact of trauma on reptilian, mammalian, and rational self, um, because it helps make sense of the kinds of symptoms that we get after we go through a trauma, why we have the experiences we do when we go through trauma, and then shortly after. Um, All the symptoms that we see with a PTSD diagnosis can be explained by trauma's impact on these different parts of the brain. Yeah, so I want to start in just diving in deep on the reptilian brain first because Mm -hmm. it's, um, it is 
the impact of the reptilian brain then influences all other brain functions right. after that. So this is really where uh, when, our, when our system is exposed to threat or trauma, it hits the reptilian brain first. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to start there and kind of dive into that piece. As Melissa was sharing, some of the general functions of the reptilian brain um, are survival. It's focused on protection, life maintenance of yourself as well as your offspring. So with that being kind of the primary focus of it, it's always constantly detecting where potential threat may be. Mm-hmm. Where is harm? Where is risk? What could potentially threaten my sense of safety or the safety of my offspring? Yes. Yeah. And that all happens outside of conscious awareness. It's not that we are consciously aware that we have a part of our system that is detecting threat always, but it's there even if we're not thinking about mm-hmm. it. So our our uh, conscious awareness could be focused somewhere else while this function is still happening and it's watching for anything that could potentially be harmful to us, which is kind of that startle reflex. Mm-hmm. Um, if you notice yourself maybe in the car driving and someone is uh, getting near you, passing you, you might jerk over before you even recognize what's happening. Yes. You might have a response to that before you even have time to make sense of it. Yeah, yeah. one of the words that we use that kind of gets at this is a reflex right? Um, Our reflexes come straight out of our reptilian brain because these are the things that our body does without us having conscious thought. And so when we have been through trauma, one of the impacts of that is that our our reptilian brain lowers the threshold um, at which it perceives something as a potential threat. Mm -hmm. So in other words, before the trauma, I would have really comfortably tolerated somebody coming up behind me and putting a hand on my shoulder. That would have been fine. I wouldn't have thought anything of it. Post-trauma, my body has decided, potentially because of the nature of the trauma, that touch is a potential threat to me. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it now lowers that threshold, and somebody coming up behind me, even just touching me lightly on the shoulder, sends me into a fear response and a startle reflex. And if it's really bad, I may turn around and hit the person, right? Mm -hmm. And none of that is done consciously. All of that happens below our conscious awareness because that is happening in our reptilian brain. It is working really hard to try to keep us safe in our environment. There's a a word that we use um, called neuroception. And neuroception is this thing that our reptilian brain and our nervous system is doing constantly. It's kind of like a sonar that goes out from our body and it's constantly scanning our environment for potential threat and keeping track of what is coming into my sphere that may want to hurt me or harm me. And when we go through a trauma, our neuroception heightens, right? We get more reactive and the scanning, uh, we kind of increase how big our scanning zone becomes and we lower that threshold of what we consider a threat. And that begins to explain why we see some of the symptoms that we do with PTSD, like that startle response and hypervigilance. And now I don't wanna sit with my back to a door. Um, I'm much more conscious of who's my who's in my environment. Things that I would have never thought about before, suddenly I'm reactive to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I think the biggest piece um, to reiterate here is it's all on a subconscious level. Yes. So when we get into the other parts of the brain, that's where we start to bring explanation to why we feel that. But this is happening on a very, very deep level in your system. Like when you get goosebumps, but you just yes. don't know why. Yes. Um, we don't the really be feeling on the yes. back of your neck. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start to sense something and our body re- begins to respond to that to protect us without us even recognizing that it's there. That's right. 
So trauma can actually rewire and, and change the way that the brain and the nervous system is wired and it responds. Mm-hmm. So knowing that if you've been through something traumatic and it doesn't have to be traditional trauma, it can be with our new definition, right. but it means that your nervous system and your brain's development is going to develop with that information, with that experience mm-hmm. um, that's already been had in your life. And so it's going to develop around that and in response to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really significant to recognize as, as we're going through, we know what our symptoms are, how we respond to life in certain ways. I want to say like, why can't I just do it different? Everyone else might do it this way, or I don't even need to be afraid of that. Someone mm-hmm. could touch my shoulder and I don't need to be afraid of that. But no, it's those earlier life experiences that had an impact on that part of your brain being developed that send it a message to say, okay, maybe that does need to be threatening. Maybe you do need to respond with fear or caution in those situations. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing that makes me think of is one of the the reasons why um, when we've been through trauma, we're much more likely to develop an addictive pattern in our life such as using alcohol or drugs or shopping or smoking or whatever it is that we you know, find, the reason why we are drawn to those things post-trauma is because we are trying to suppress that heightened neuroception and that heightened uh, fear response. And we have to find something to help us deal with that constant kind of low-key or sometimes not so low-key anxiety because it feels like the world is so threatening. And we find those things to help suppress that and deal with that. And that really explains why post-trauma are we very prone to developing substance abuse, substance addiction, um, process abuses, such as shopping, all of those things that we do to try to calm. Um, because we really need it. That hypervigilance keeps us keyed up all the time. It you know causes disruptions in sleep because our body doesn't feel safe to really relax. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how we really begin to understand why do we see the kinds of patterns that we do post-trauma. Yeah. So the next section of the brain that we're going to explore is the mammalian brain. Yeah. And Melissa gave a little overview of that, but this is really focused on... Um, you know, nurturing your young, living in community, connection with others. Um, It's the second oldest part of the brain. So everything that happens in the reptilian brain, that messaging goes directly into the mammalian brain, and then it begins kind of its processing around Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So the mammalian brain is houses two really significant um, pieces of our brain. That's the amygdala and the hippocampus. Yeah. So the amygdala serves the function of sounding the alarm bells in our brain when there is some type of threat. So on the reptilian level, when threat is detected, it then hits the mammalian brain and that alarm bell gets sound. So it's like the warning. Okay, there's threat, there's threat, there's threat. Yes. The other um, piece of the brain that really is important here is the hippocampus, and that is the part of the brain that remembers what happened. Mm -hmm. So it stores really concrete memory of that experience as a way to further prepare us or to prevent this harm and danger from happening again. Mm -hmm. How do we avoid that? How do we protect from that? Or if it's a positive experience, how do we, you know, get more of that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one way that's kind of helpful to think about this is we have to remember that our brain and our nervous system is an electrical system, right? And so when something in our neuroception hits our reptilian brain and says, hey, this is a potential threat, that electrical signal gets sent up to our mammalian brain and that's where the action really starts to happen, right? The reptilian brain, um, the, the 
stimulus is going to come through that and then activate all of those mammalian processes such as fight flight or freeze mm -hmm. that this is where the fight flight freeze response is initiated the amygdala sounds the alarm that says hey we need one of those strategies are you going to fight are you going to flee are you going to play dead because that is what it means as a mammal to try to cope with a life threat we have those three options and usually those three options are going to be enough to get us out of danger um what happens in the case of the amygdala and the hippocampus post-trauma is that sometimes that activation doesn't stop. It's like the, the lights got turned on and turned way up bright and they never go off. And so we're just continually having activation in the amygdala. The alarm never quits sounding or it's much more sensitive and the alarm is going to sound a lot sooner, a lot faster and a lot louder than it would have previously. And the hippocampus is in charge of deciding whether or not we're done with the information that came in during the trauma, right? So it brings in the story of what happened to us, and then it's going to decide, does this need to stay in active, conscious, working memory, or has a threat passed, and now I can move it over into long-term memory because I'm done using it? Its usefulness is not relevant to my current life. With PTSD, what we see is that the hippocampus does not uh, decide that it can release it into long-term memory. It stays in working memory. And this is why when we experience triggering, right, where that uh, gets reactivated, it's because that material is right there. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, deep in the files of our brain. It's right, it's like literally still on the desk, right? It's sitting there right in our face. And so when something gets activated in our environment, that reminds us of that, that file is right there and all that information comes rushing back in. And that's a function of the hippocampus. Healing from trauma is really giving the brain and the body an opportunity to move that off the desk and really get that filed back into long-term memory so that we're not so highly reactive to it. And the way that our brains will hold on to the experience are with key pieces to help prevent us from going through that again. And mm -hmm. so that's where um, Melissa used the example before, I was fine with someone touching my shoulder, but then after the trauma, that feels threatening. Right. So your system is picking up on that being a threat. Um, your memory has, the hippocampus is hold up, held on to the memory of that feeling of a shoulder touch or the um, image of a tall man with a beard and dark mm -hmm. hair. And so then is it begins to detect that as threat. And because it was somewhat similar or similar enough to mm -hmm. what was actually very harmful to you, your body will treat it as if it is threat, danger, risk, fight, flight, freeze, go through that whole process to try to protect you from experiencing that trauma again. Yes, yeah, which is super adaptive, right? It is a good thing that this happens. The problem is, is that what helps us survive in a life-threatening moment starts causing us problems later on. And that is where a lot of the time when somebody decides to come into therapy because of a trauma, it's quite a while later after the trauma has passed because we, we understand that it makes sense that we're somewhat reactive immediately after. But as those responses continue months, even years later, mm -hmm. then we're getting the sense like, okay, this is worn out, it's welcome, right? Yeah. What helped me stay alive in the moment is now really, really inconvenient when I'm trying to just live normal life and that threat has passed. Um, the, the third major part of what trauma does to our brain is how it hits our rational brain. 
And this is where we see the most, well, I don't want to say interesting, maybe most profound impact. Trauma shuts down our rational brain, literally unplugs it. And a really important thing to note is that our brain and our nervous system don't actually care or understand the difference between the real trauma happening right now and something later on that triggers it. So when we are um, activated by something in our environment that reminds us of a past trauma, we go through the exact same experiences that we did at the time of the trauma. And this can be really, really confusing because our response is so mismatched to what is actually happening in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when, when the, the rational brain shuts down or gets unplugged, then we don't have the ability to make rational sense of it, mm-hmm. to bring um, meaning, like healthy meaning to it. So we go through this experience, and then when we're out of the immediate risk, the rational brain comes back online and tries to, to make sense of it all. Yeah, okay, like what's fills the in story? the gaps. Yes. yes, yes. And the risk with the filling in the gaps is oftentimes those gaps get filled in with pieces of information that... One, because we're egocentric beings, it becomes about ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So this happened because of me, something because I'm about bad. me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we fill in those gaps with those pieces, which can, can become very maladaptive in our functioning later. Uh, we try to make sense of a story. We try to plug in all the information mm-hmm. when oftentimes the traumatic experience doesn't actually have a lot of logic or reason or sense to right. be made out of it. But when the rational brain comes in without all of the information there, we try to put all of that in and it can either be a story that is helpful to us and promotes our healing path and our our healing journey after that, or it's a story that really holds us back and and presents a lot of barriers to the life that we want to live after that. Yeah. Like such as, you know, causing us to feel incredible shame about what happened. Mm -hmm. And the, the interesting thing is, is that the rational brain is trying to do its best to help us, but it makes some pretty profound mistakes in the stories that it chooses to tell. So one of the most common examples that we run into in therapy is the example of the rational brain tends to prioritize feeling in control over really telling us the truth. Here's what I mean by that. If our rational brain feels like the best way to be safe is to feel like I have control of a situation, it's going to encourage us to tell stories that put all the responsibility on us because that means that I could have had control. And if I can have control of that situation, maybe I can prevent it in the future. So you guys can see how this gets real problematic. If my rational brain starts to tell me a story that, well, if you would have just done this, or if you hadn't have been wearing that, mm-hmm. or if you wouldn't have talked to them you know, in that moment, if you would have figured out that they were a a bad person, then you wouldn't have had that awful thing happen to you. That is such a rational story, (laughs) but also so untrue. And that's our brain's way of trying to get more control so that potentially we could prevent it from happening in the future. The problem with that is that what we feel when we hear that story is tremendous shame. Mm -hmm. It puts responsibility on us that number one doesn't belong to us, But number two produces a feeling of deep shame. And shame is one of the most traumatic things to us as a human being. And so in an effort to stay safe, our rational brain produces a shame response Mm -hmm. to take responsibility on us. And now we've got major problems. 
Yeah, so it's it's that our brain demanding responsibility as a way to try to be able to have control over it because mm-hmm. then we could maybe prevent it in the future. That's right. With the catch-22 of by accepting that responsibility, then we feel shameful about who we are as a human and our existence in the world. Yes. Uh, which really in the long run is more damaging, um, that story around it. Yeah. We talk a lot about this idea of story, follow state, follow story. And it comes from the way that the brain is processing all this information. So when we go out into the world, we experience, um, say we experience some form of a threat, okay? Our reptilian brain receives that and it sends us, our nervous systems, into a certain state, mm-hmm. right? So we feel something in our body, we have a certain response. It's when it hits the rational brain that we make a story out of it. We bring all of our you know, logic and wisdom and words to, we put them all together to make a story out of why did my body feel that or why did my body go through that. From that story, depending on the story we wrap around that experience, it will lead to then a following state of some sort, mm-hmm. right? Either a state of shame or a state of pride or a state of relief. It, it can go any direction, mm-hmm. but it's from that story we'll have yet another state, which will lead yet to another story, and it kind of continues to perpetuate this process or this cycle. That's right. Yeah. I think, you know, a really great illustration of how story and state becomes so powerful is looking at the different stories that we could tell ourselves after a trauma. Mm-hmm. So, easy example of this. Um, if I tell myself that same story that I, you know, just described of this was my fault, if only I had, you know, done this or this or this, um, what that is going to perpetuate is that, number one, state of shame and also a, a shrinking back from life, right? I'm going to start avoiding certain situations um, because I believe that's the best way to control my life so that I never experience that thing again. On the other hand, if I tell myself the story of, that there was nothing that I could have done to prevent what happened to me. It had nothing to do with me and was entirely the choice of another person. Now, on the surface, that feels real bad, right? But if that story continues and we talk ourselves through it and say, what I can do is be incredibly proud of myself for figuring out how to survive that situation. My body did exactly what it needed to do, right? My reptilian and mammalian brain made lightning fast decisions and the fact that I'm sitting here today able to think about what happened to me means that my neurobiology did exactly what it needed to do in order to survive. And while it's uncomfortable to think that we cannot prevent bad things from happening, it is reality. Mm -hmm. If we believe that we can prevent and avoid all difficult situations, we start to get really, really anxious and we start to have avoidance patterns. But if I trust myself to handle whatever life throws my way, not that I wanted to, not that I'm going to go looking for it, far from it, right? But when the inevitable hard stuff happens, I now have a lived experience that says, I can do it. I hated it. Don't want to do it again. Right. Right. Don't want to experience that. Hope I don't have to. But when trauma comes knocking at my door, I can trust my body to do exactly what it needs to do to carry me through that. That story helps us relax and release fear, right? And actually continue to live and be expansive in our life rather than restrictive in our life. So that's an example of how story follows state, follow story, follow state, (laughs) gets really important because if I'm telling myself a story about how I can trust my body 
it creates a state of relaxation, of confidence, and of willingness to continue to live and try. And that state will perpetuate good experiences because as we continue to move out in the world, we get more and more experience of the majority of the time life is safe. Right. The majority of the time that I go and drive, I don't get in a wreck. Mm-hmm. Right. If I begin to restrict my life because my my state and my story are telling me that that's how I need to stay safe, I get more and more evidence that well, this is the only way to stay safe. If I never drive, I never get in a wreck. That's so logical. Right. And, and then if I never leave my house. Right. Right. If I never leave my bedroom. Mm-hmm. If I never leave my bed. Yeah. And that is how we start to get these really really restrictive lifestyles after a trauma. And it is always because of first the state that we were in and the story that came along to try to describe it. Well, I think that's what defines the difference of survival, surviving versus thriving. Yeah. Our systems are wired in a way to only really focus on surviving, mm-hmm. right? And so depending on the story we put around it, we can survive and we might need a ton of anxiety in yes. order to guarantee that to happen, yes. which in all reality, it's still not guaranteed yeah. because we don't have control over everything. But mm-hmm. we can pump our systems full of anxiety, fear, shame, concern as an attempt to survive. But that's not thriving in a life in a day that we really, in a way in which we really desire. Yes. And so it's finding that story that says, I actually can protect myself when I need to or when I'm when that's even an option but um, I don't necessarily need the story that says I have to hide in my bed for days at a time to be able to be okay yes I have a lot of times when clients will come into my office and we begin doing this work they've had such tremendous layering of the story follow state follow story follow state where it's years of trauma and um sometimes it's other people's stories absolutely absolutely (laughs) other people come along and like feed into those negative stories and uh, really really perpetuate some of those symptoms Uh, we have societal stories cultural stories religious stories all kinds of stuff that get piled on and then this idea of okay if i just understand that concept which everything melissa and i are talking about here is happening in our rational brain even as you're hearing it Mm -hmm. right so when we're talking about these concepts we can teach that to our clients and they can understand that rationally, but they'll say something almost every single time. That makes sense, but... but. There's always the but, yes. <laughs> and so it's really looking at what does it mean to heal trauma, not just in the rational way of understanding it. That's a huge piece. We have to be able to understand it mm-hmm. in our rational brain, mm-hmm. but to also look at what's it like to rewire the way our nervous system has been shaped to respond yes. and to go back in and do healing, not just from a rational place, but down deeper into our nervous system yes. in the way that those experiences have been stored. And that always involves intentionally creating situations and really giving our body a chance to feel them that have uh, safety Mm -hmm. Um, and that's relational safety environmental safety because our body after a trauma is so concerned with safety right usually whatever the trauma was lack of safety was the major component of it and that could be emotional or physical or spiritual mm-hmm. doesn't matter which kind of lack of safety we are very very sensitive to that so healing trauma must include a lived felt experience of i wasn't safe then but i am safe now at least right here in this moment with this person in this situation 
I am as safe as any human can be. And coming to that rational conclusion, but then really trying to sink in and feel what that feels mm-hmm. like again. It's mm-hmm. the felt sense of what does it feel like to feel safe. I was talking to somebody recently that was having just panic attacks and kind of being overwhelmed uh, without really understanding, like, where's all this emotion coming from? Well, it's coming from past trauma, right? It's a yeah. mismatch for the current environment. Um, and so he felt very confused by that. But when we understand what trauma does and how it lingers in this way, those kinds of reactions make a lot of sense. And when I asked him, what would it mean for your body to feel safe right now? The way he described it, I felt like was so perfect. He said, it would feel like having someone sit next to me and I could lay my head in their lap and they could put a cool hand on my forehead. Hmm. As perfect. He was describing the felt sense, the body sense of what would it mean to feel safe again. And those experiences, even if we're just doing them in our own mind, like connecting with that sensation and giving our body a little taste of what that feels like, begins to rewire. And what it's doing is it's calming down the amygdala, turning that alarm bell off, letting us sink back into our relaxation response where safety is really a possibility for us. But it has to include a lived, felt experience of Mm -hmm. it. It cannot just be a rational experience. Yeah. And I think so often that happens, you know, those of you who are listening to this, who either are in therapy or considering going into therapy, happens right there in that relationship with a therapist or a Mm -hmm. relationship with another safe person in your life. But it, it requires a choice of vulnerability to say, in order to, to see that it's safe, I have to at least experience what that is like. I can't mm-hmm. have all the guards up and the story that tells me no relationship is safe or mm-hmm. no human could really accept me as I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it requires a choice of vulnerability to go in and say, what would it be like to experience this right here in this moment with a trusted person? Yes. Um, so that my system can now have a new experience that says something different than the old experiences that were harmful and painful mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, yeah. And that um, often happens in therapy. It can often happen with a friend, with a partner or mm-hmm. spouse. There's lots of places that we can experience that, but choosing to open up to that, to seek it out, and when we do have access to it, to really sink into it and let our body feel it is where most of us post-trauma really struggle. The idea of being vulnerable in that way and opening up to that again um, really requires some courage because there's a darn good reason why we shut that down in the first place. And uh, that is you know, the work of healing from trauma and where our courage comes in and says, I have to take this step and open up to it even in a small way, right? It's okay mm-hmm. to test the waters, toe dip into safety with somebody. And if that goes okay, and they demonstrate that they can really be safe for you, then go a little bit deeper. It is okay and wise to go slow and steady. And that's with a therapist, with a friend, with a partner. Any human has to earn the sense of safety. We cannot demand it from each other. And so really giving yourself the time and the space to sink into that slowly because you want that to be a really good experience for your body. We hope to, in our next episode, kind of continue in this um, in this path of exploring the brain, but looking at the right and left hemisphere, which mm-hmm. we talked a little bit in the last episode. But just to foreshadow that for you, just continuing to dive more into how the brain responds to trauma in these ways and how it affects us. Yeah. So 
Um, before we close today, we wanted to talk about a couple of resources we have for those of you who are listening, who are interested in what we're talking about and may want more support um, or yeah, more help in your healing process. Mm-hmm. So one thing that we offer here at Beyond Healing Center is um, therapy retreats. And that's something where you can come to Springfield, where we are, and stay here for anywhere from three to five days. And during that time, we take a really um, intentional focus on where are your wounds, where are your emotional wounds, your trauma, and how do we begin to heal that and begin to rewire the way that your nervous system has been shaped to alleviate some of the symptoms that might be showing up. Mm -hmm. So we do that through a very holistic approach. It's therapy, um, very heavily focused in therapy, but also body-based work. So that includes massage therapy, yoga therapy, um, craniosacral. We bring in art therapy. There's just a lot of options of things that we can do. There's even some options related to equine therapy. Mm -hmm. So we can get you with horses and look at the healing power of working with horses. Um, so beautiful, beautiful opportunities, and we'd love to talk to you guys more if any of you are interested in exploring some of the details of that opportunity. But we've seen tremendous outcomes through um, people coming in for these and being able to work on their trauma in a really safe and supportive environment and then be able to take that home and integrate it into their lifestyle there. Yeah. Yeah, another resource that we have on our website um, is the Mental Health First Aid Kit. Um, And so if you're looking just for some added support, that uh, package has a lot of activities that you can do, journal prompts, recordings, meditations, um, a little bit of education about trauma in the brain, uh, all kind of rolled into one class. And um, that's on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com. And if you go to courses and scroll down, you'll uh, see the link to go and purchase the mental health first aid kit. Um, and that's just really a way to support yourself in finding coping skills and uh, different ways that you can take care of yourself as you're going through your healing journey from trauma. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening in. And we look forward to connecting again on our next episode. But until then, safe journeys. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Trauma, a psychotherapy podcast from therapists for clients about the journey of trauma recovery. While resources like this can be helpful, they should never take the place of or be used as therapy. We encourage you to find a trauma-informed therapist in your area to be your guide in this healing journey. Take a minute to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify, and we would appreciate it if you could leave us a review. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at beyondtraumapodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in.